Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for this opportunity to dive into the Word, to allow you to speak to us. You know that each one of us is here listening to this, watching this, participating in this way, and you already know what you want to say to us, Lord. And so we pray that we would have ears to hear, minds that are flexible and ready to understand, hearts that are open and ready to receive your love, Lord. Challenge us, convict us, comfort us, heal us in the ways that we need it, Lord. And we ask that you cast out any spirit of disobedience, any spirit of distraction, anxiety, worry, anything drawing our attention or our hearts away from your word during this time. We ask by the power of your name and your presence that you would cast those things out and send your Holy Spirit upon each one of us in the ways we most need it to guide us during this time. We lay this at your feet, and we lay our entire lives at your feet, Lord. We ask that your will always be done. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, hello and welcome. We're not meeting together in person this week because we have our parish mission here at St. Timothy's, and so I hope you're able to attend. There's still time if you're not yet uh, coming. You can register now. You can show up tonight or tomorrow night. We hope to see you there. But if you're watching this later, ignore that. But know that's why we're not meeting in person or why it might look a little bit different on this recording. We are preparing for the readings for this upcoming Sunday, which is the third Sunday of Lent. And most of us will hear the gospel that we're about to read, which is John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. However, if you happen to be at your parish and you go to a Mass where those who are in OCIA, converting to Catholicism, where they're going through the first scrutiny, which always happens on the third Sunday of Lent, they typically use the readings from cycle A. So you might hear the gospel uh, in John chapter 4, the longer story of Jesus encountering the Samaritan woman at the well. If that's the case, or you'd like to study that passage also, there'll be a link in the description below as to uh, where you can find our gospel studies on that particular passage. But for those of us here for this Sunday, not going to one of those masses, the normal cycle B liturgy places us in John chapter 2, verses, again, 13 through 25. This is the story of Jesus cleansing the temple in Jerusalem. We're going to read this twice through. First time through, get a picture for what's being said. In the Gospel of John, this is very early in the Gospel of John, just chapter 2, and Jesus has just basically begun his public ministry by instituting his first sign by turning the water to wine at the wedding at Cana. And right after that, he shows up in Jerusalem. Now, all the other Gospels place this event at the end of Jesus' ministry during the week that he is uh, what we would now celebrate as Holy Week, that he is about to be crucified. And it serves as a reason uh, why most of the Pharisees and the Sadducees want him put to death because of these different conflicts with authority that Jesus seems to find himself in. Uh, however, in John, uh, that's not his purpose. He wants to show 
how Jesus has the power to raise people from the dead. And so it's raising Lazarus in John chapter 11 that really gets the attention of the Pharisees. And John uses that as a literary device to show this is part of the reason why Jesus was crucified. Uh, We can probably more likely rely upon the chronological order of this happening uh, later in his ministry, as we have in the Synoptic Gospels. But just know that's why it appears early in the Gospel of John, because he's trying to communicate something differently, different about where the tension lies in people's threat of Jesus being uh, not just some other rabbi, but that he has this ability that shows that he is either a blasphemer or he is something supernatural and divine, and they're not willing to believe that. So that's why it appears here just in the second chapter of John. We're going to read this passage. Jesus shows up in uh, Jerusalem and throws over the temples, uh, the tables of the money changers in the temple area. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. This is our first time through. Just get a picture for what's being said here. Since the Passover of the Jews was near, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple area those who sold oxen, sheep, and doves, as well as the money changers seated there. He made a whip out of cords and drove them all out of the temple area with the sheep and oxen and spilled the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, Take these out of here and stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples recalled the words of scripture, zeal for your house will consume me. At this, the Jews answered and said to Jesus, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and you will raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Therefore, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they came to believe the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. While he was in Jerusalem for the feast of Passover, many began to believe in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus would not trust himself to them because he knew them all and did not need anyone to testify about human nature. He himself understood it well. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So now that you get a picture for this scene, uh, we're going to read this one more time. And this time I invite you to, uh, you know, you can keep that image in your mind, but pay attention to the words as they are being read. We're not reading it this time to theologically interpret the passage. We're really trying to look for what speaks to you personally in this passage. What stands out to you? What details catch your attention? What questions arise in your heart? Why is God allowing these particular things to resonate with you versus somebody else's interpretation? And pay attention to those. Reflect on them. God, what are you saying to me personally and specifically through this passage? Since the Passover of the Jews was near, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple area those who sold oxen, sheep, and doves, as well as the money changers seated there. He made a whip out of cords and drove them all out of the temple area with the sheep and oxen and spilled the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, take these out of here and stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples recalled the words of scripture, zeal for your house will consume me. At this, the Jews answered and said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days? 
but Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Therefore, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remember what he, remembered what he had said. Remember that he had said this, and they came to believe the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. While Jesus was in Jerusalem for the feast of Passover, many began to believe in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus would not trust himself to them because he knew them all and did not need anyone to testify about human nature. He himself understood it well. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments to look back over this passage and the things that stood out to you personally. And if you're watching this, preferably with other people, um, share with them. If you're watching this on your own, there's also a live chat feature, so you can write it in the chat or in the comments. Let us know uh, what stood out to you, what questions you have. We'd love to hear what resonates with you in Scripture, even if you don't have a question. So if you're watching this with other people or you'd like to take a moment to reflect, to journal, to spend some time in prayer with this passage, I invite you to pause the video now. But if you would like to choose to go on or you did pause and you're back, we're going to move ahead and dive into this passage verse by verse and see how we can better understand it. Okay, so first of all, it's really helpful to understand uh, the temple layout and where all of this is taking place. So remember, it says in the very first verse that the Passover of the Jews was near. Now, you might be thinking, okay, why distinguish this as the Passover of the Jews? Was there another Passover? Uh, there's no other uh, celebration in the Christian tradition that is called the Passover, but it could be a distinction from the fact that the early Christians understood the Mass to be the new Passover that Jesus instituted by the sacrifice of His body and His blood, being the new Passover lamb, delivering us from our sins, and that being ratified on the cross. And so early Christians may have understood that in a sort of new Passover for Christians because they do receive bread and drink wine as is done at the Passover meal. But it's just to also distinguish that this was a feast particular to the Jews. The Passover was one of three pilgrimage feasts where every Jew of a certain age who was a male who lived within about 50 miles of Jerusalem was expected to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem for these feasts. If you lived outside of that range, you were still encouraged. And if you weren't male or you weren't in that age range, you were still encouraged to come. But those were the only people who were required by the laws of the time to come and make pilgrimage. And those three feasts were the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, which is also known as the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths, or Sukkot. And so those three times a year, men would make pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and they would participate in the different festivities, they would rest. It was a solemn week of Sabbath without any work, where they would undergo different activities or time of prayer, time of sacrifice, certain things that were required in Torah law to either atone for sins or to celebrate the fact that God had delivered them in some way. So the Passover, you'll remember, we read about in Exodus chapter 12. It's reiterated in Deuteronomy 16. Uh, the reason for this is a uh, commemoration of the fact that God delivered the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt and led them eventually to the Promised Land. And so every year, it's said in God's original command of the Passover that you will make this a perpetual celebration, that every year you will remember this and you will do this in memory of this time when the angel of the Lord passed over your homes because you spread the blood of the lamb on your doorpost so that you would be freed and not suffer the wrath and the destruction of those who were believing in false gods. So they've done this faithfully. There have been times in salvation history they didn't. They stopped uh, uh, abiding by the Passover, at least 
as a whole congregation, uh, families may have still celebrated this, but for the most part, during times of exile, during times of corruption. And so you'll see, as you read the Old Testament, them have different references to, they took back up the celebration, or they found a scroll, like under the reign of King Josiah, they find a scroll that tells them about all these details of the law that they had forgotten, and they start instituting this again. And then with Ezra and Nehemiah, when they come out of exile, they read the law once again, and they reinstitute a lot of these different sacrificial feasts. So a lot to remember about Passover. What that pilgrimage required was that you would come to the temple and make the prescribed sacrifice of a unblemished lamb. Uh, it describes this in Exodus chapter 12, that you need to find on the 10th day of Nisan, which we now celebrate as Palm Sunday, you find a unblemished lamb, at least a year old, and you keep it with you until the 14th day, so about four or five days later, and then you slaughter it in the evening twilight and you offer it, um, you roast its flesh with uh, bitter herbs, you consume it with unleavened bread and wine according to the prescribed uh, script of the Passover meal. And that was expected of everyone. Well, the problem is if you're making pilgrimage to Jerusalem, it says you go up to Jerusalem. Well, that's because Jerusalem is up in elevation, somewhere around 2,250 feet above sea level. And you'll remember the Dead Sea, which is nearby, is down more than 1,000 feet below sea level, or maybe 500 to 1,500, somewhere in there. And so there's a big disparity in elevation for people who are making pilgrimage from different areas of Israel. So for that reason, People did not bring their farm animals because if they were to trek them up these dangerous paths and hills and mountain passes, they would not be unblemished. They would be cut, they would be bruised, and they would be unworthy to present to God for sacrifice. It was forbidden in the Old Testament to present a lamb that had blemish or cuts or spots or whatever it might be, uh, anything that wasn't a pure unblemished lamb. It was forbidden to offer that to God in sacrifice. So there needed to be people selling animals in a marketplace or near the temple so that people could buy the animals they needed for sacrifice. There also needed to be money changers because you could not pay the temple tax, you could not offer anything to the Lord uh, monetarily using a coin that was called an effigy coin. An effigy coin is a coin that has the depiction of an emperor or any kind of earthly image. You'll remember in the Ten Commandments, which are our first reading for this Sunday, so not unrelated, uh, that in the Ten Commandments, the first commandment says that you shall not make any graven image of anything on the earth or under the earth. And what that means is they weren't meant to make idols that they would bow down to. It says specifically in the commandment that you will not bow down to it. However, that became in the practice of the time that you didn't create anything with the image of anything on it so as to prevent you from treating it like an idol. So the only coins that Jews were allowed to use were uh, coins that didn't have any kind of depictions of people or animals or gods on them. And usually they used Tyrian coins, coins from Tyre, because Tyre's coins had the highest quality and they were always accurate to the amount of silver or whatever element was in it to account for its worth. Money changers would sometimes put extra weights on their scales, they would rip people off, they would not give them the rightful exchange rate, people in these marketplaces would sell animals at a higher price than was needed, and that would make it even more difficult for them to fulfill the different obligations that they came on pilgrimage to fulfill. So there was a lot of corruption in these practices, but they needed to be there in the first place. The problem was the corruption and also the location. The temple area had an outer wall and then it had an inner courtyard. And that inner courtyard was a large area. Jesus is often depicted as teaching in that area. It was called the Court of the Gentiles. And it was an area where anyone could come and offer worship or prayer. 
But the problem is it got very busy. And when you have these money changers in there, they stink, they smell, they're creating all this noise. It's not a very reverent area for Gentiles to come. And it was kind of this disrespectful hit at the Gentiles because the Jews and the Gentiles did not always get along and they didn't want them there in the first place, many of them. But there was supposed to be this open courtyard for them to come and be able to worship. Then you had the inner part of the temple, which had kind of an inner courtyard, which was the court of the women, which is where the treasury also was, where people could offer their monetary gifts. And then there were steps up to an archway where you could bring your sacrifice and the priests and Levites would meet you there and only they could bring it into the actual temple sanctuary area, which had a courtyard where the sacrifices were prepared and offered on an altar. And then there was the inner building of the temple that had two rooms, one that had the altar of incense, the menorah, the altar of showbread, and then the inner sanctuary where originally when it had been built, the Ark of the Covenant was, and that was the Holy of Holies, separated by a very thick veil from the rest. And only the high priest could go in there once a year. So that was the layout of the temple area. This is happening in the court of the Gentiles. So it's not in the temple sanctuary. The terms that are used here are the temple area, the outer courtyard, the court of the Gentiles. Okay, so that's where all of this is happening, why this is taking place. One other important historical note is that the money changers used to not be in the temple area. They were never supposed to be in there in the first place. They used to be in the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley is a little valley right between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. And it's right in that kind of space in between where if you're coming to Jerusalem from the east, you would easily see the marketplace or the money changers there. You'd buy your animals. You'd get to go right in through the eastern gate. And the eastern gate of Jerusalem was the gate that led right to the temple. So it was a very geographically appropriate place for them to gather. Well, when Caiaphas had become high priest, he had enlisted the help of some political favors and those who had done him well during that time of um, his political kind of campaign to be high priest, he returned the favor by allowing them to sell their animals and exchange money in the temple marketplace or in the temple courtyard of the Gentiles. So that was something that Caiaphas took it upon himself as a favor for those who had formed political alliances with him and helped him secure kind of election and appointment to the role of high priest. Some shady stuff going on. So uh, not great reasons why they were there in the first place, and then they're undergoing these corrupt practices. So Caiaphas, as high priest, who's supposed to be someone who instills in people the holiness and reverence of the temple and of sacrifice, instead is using his position for his own benefit and then doling out favors irregardless of the corruption that may result from it, even if it reflects badly on the reverence that the temple area is supposed to have. So you can see why someone who's faithful to the, the law and someone who is God himself, Jesus, would be upset by this because this is something that's supposed to be consecrated for people to come back in right relationship with the Lord. And it's being abused and treated as a means for people to make an extra buck for their own personal uh, benefit or their own corrupt practices. That's why this whole situation takes place. That's why Jesus gets so upset. So, the Passover of the Jews was near. It's also important to note in the Gospel of John, there are three Passovers mentioned, which is why we typically say that Jesus' ministry was about two or three years, because it spanned the length of three Passovers. Uh, this is the first Passover that's mentioned. The second one is around the time that he does the miracle of the loaves and the fishes in John chapter 6. And then the third one is at the Last Supper in John chapter 13. Uh, we usually only have mention of one Passover in the Synoptic Gospels. That may very well be because they're just condensing all the material they could find from the most significant events of Jesus' ministry 
and it seems like it's a very short time when you read it in one go, but it obviously took time for a lot of these things to happen, for him to find his disciples, to travel everywhere he did, and so it wasn't just go, go, go every day. There was probably a lot of downtime, like there was in the rest of Jesus' life that we don't know much about. So that's why we typically say it was about two or three years of his ministry. Jesus went up to Jerusalem, again that pilgrimage feast up, Jerusalem a city set on a hill. It could be seen from far away, it was kind of this image. Jesus uses that image in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you should be like a city set up on a hill for all to see. Uh, No one lights a a lamp and then uh, puts it under a bushel basket. You set it up on a lampstand for all to see, so it should be the same for you and I. Uh, We should be examples that are visible to others. So Jerusalem was meant to be that kind of flagship example of reverence and holiness to God. It was the place of sacrifice and worship. Jesus found in the temple area those who sold oxen, sheep, and doves. Again, that word for temple area, hiero, it is the word for the whole kind of complex. It doesn't specify the inner sanctuary. That's how we know uh, why they were there and where exactly they were. Uh, And they're selling these animals for sacrifice. He made a whip out of cords. Now, Now, take a second. I want you to think about this. When you and I get angry, you know, we kind of maybe burst out and we, we, you know, we express our anger if you've got a quick temper, or if you don't have a quick temper, if you're more cool-headed, then maybe we will go kind of like process it, or maybe we'll just kind of bury it and let it fester. Think about how much of an injustice this must have been to Jesus, that he takes the time to go gather the materials, to fashion a whip, to drive these people out of the marketplace. Like, all the time, just, these guys, they don't understand, they don't know what they're doing, how'd they get here? Come on, like, just just imagine the human nature in that. We sometimes dehumanize Jesus. And we have to recognize, like, Jesus got angry. It was righteous anger, it was never sinful anger. There's a difference. When we experience injustice, we should get angry in a holy way that compels us to do something about it for the dignity and the good of the people who are involved. That's what Jesus is experiencing, and he's experiencing it more, like exponentially more than any human ever has because his emotions are not dulled by sin. So he experienced a depth of human emotion that no other human has yet to experience because he's perfectly human. He's unstained by sin. And so we can imagine possibly how difficult uh, this was for Jesus to see and how compelled he was to act. Now, there was a typical whip used at this time uh, in like flagellations and, and punishments that was called a cat of nine tails. Now, we don't have any reason to believe that this is the type of whip that Jesus made, um, but it's the, certainly the type of whip that he was tortured with. We know that from his injuries and from what's uh, said in the text contextually. But I found it interesting that we have in the first reading the Ten Commandments, And then we have an image of a whip, the commonly used whip at the time, a cat of nine tails, whereas there's one handle and out of it, nine strands flow with sharp things at the end of each one. Now, I don't think Jesus made this particular type of whip, but I think the image is useful because remember, our first reading is the Ten Commandments. And the first commandment, the handle of the Ten Commandments, is that the Lord is first and you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. You shall have no gods before him. Okay, I added the Shema in there. It's not the text of the commandment, but you get the idea. You should love God above all. There's no other gods beside him. And from that flows the understanding of all the other nine commandments. That's why we don't take his name in vain. That's why we worship him and keep holy the Sabbath. That's why we not only love him, but we love others to whom he has chosen. We love 
our, our mother and father, and we honor them. We don't kill, we don't commit adultery, we don't steal or lie or covet our neighbor's goods or their spouses. So all of those things stem from that handle, and those nine things come off it. And so in a sense, the Ten Commandments are like this spiritual whip. And it's no wonder they are the first commandment when we're having a depiction of the place where the commandments are meant to be upheld and worship is meant to happen, first and foremost in the temple area, and people have sought, instead of God, the idolatry of money or wealth or pride. And Jesus is essentially trying to whip those things out of their hearts. Jesus' whip is essentially the Ten Commandments driving sin and vice out of our bodies and out of our souls. But also think about how irritated he probably was to just spend the time to make this whip. Crazy. So, he drove them all out of the temple area with the sheep and the oxen. Okay, so he, all the animals out of there. And he spills the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Now, when it says drove them out, the word in, in Greek is exabalin. This is the word that is also used anytime Jesus drives demons out of individuals. So really, there is a sense of spiritual exorcism happening here. There is something spiritually dark and negative that is tainting the purity of the temple area that Jesus needs by his nature as being pure and just. He needs to drive it from this place. Otherwise, it, it would not be just. It would not be merciful. And then it says, To those he sold doves, he said, Take these out of here and stop making my house a father's marketplace. This is where we have an interesting detail, that he doesn't drive them out with the group. He, uh, he, he separates them. And he has this detail, don't make my father's house a marketplace. So it's, it's communicating this idea that they were probably haggling or upping their prices to get their, the most money out of it. Well, why does this matter with the doves? Well, because in Leviticus chapter 5, the doves are for a specific group of people. In verse 7, it says, If a person cannot afford an animal of the flock, that person shall bring to the Lord as reparation for the wrong committed two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for purification and the other for a burnt offering. We see when Jesus is presented in the temple, uh, his parents bring an offering of two birds because they were very poor. So these birds, they are the animal sacrifice of those people who are too poor to afford the sheep or the oxen or the lambs. And yet these money changers are still driving up the prices. And so Jesus isolates them specifically and he says, do not make my father's house a marketplace. He's aligning himself as the son of the father, expressing this divinity, but he's also condemning them for not obeying what the Torah has prescribed as mercy for those who are poor so that they can still come and find right relationship with God and participate in the worship and sacrifice of the temple. They are becoming obstacles to people's worship obstacles to people's ability to participate in the community and being obedient to the law. There's something there for us, I think, to reflect on. Have we ever been obstacles? Are we being obstacles now from people being able to be fully received or feeling the hospitality of the church, feeling the love of the Lord? Have we stood in the way of that in some way? His disciples recalled the words of Scripture, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, the interesting thing about this, this shows up in, in the Psalms, Psalms 69, verse 10. But the way it's written in the Psalms says this, it says, Because zeal for your house has consumed me, I am scorned by those who scorn you. We can interpret that as a prophecy for the one who is going to come, who is zealous for the Lord, who is scorned by others, a prophecy for what ends up happening to Jesus, and that he is crucified for trying to bring the good news to people. 
However, what it says here, it's not that the zeal for his house has already consumed him. This is forward, future tense. Zeal for your house will consume me in the future. John, again, trying to portray that this, just as the other Gospels do, more clearly, putting it toward the end of Jesus' ministry, this is part of the reason why Jesus eventually is consumed, taken up by the cross, because of these tensions that result in his zeal for the Lord. At this the Jews answered and said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Now this, I think, is part of the evidence for the fact that this happened probably later in Jesus' ministry. Because the way that John is organized, the first half of John is called the Book of Signs. And there are seven signs that happen in the Gospel of John. Seven very miraculous instances that show and teach us something about Jesus. The wedding at Cana, uh, where he turns the water to wine. The healing of the royal official's son in John chapter 4. In in chapter 5, where he heals the paralytic. Where he feeds the 5,000 in chapter 6. Later in chapter 6, where he walks on water. And then uh, when he heals the blind man from birth in John 9, and then when he raises Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. The only sign that he has done so far is the wedding at Cana. So why would the Jews be compelled to ask this man for a sign if he was not known for showing signs? They probably would have just arrested him, tortured him, thrown him in jail, crucified him, whatever. So this to me is a clear indication that Jesus already had a reputation at this point. Putting it later in his ministry, John is putting it here So to later on emphasize how the signs led to Jesus being crucified, the greatest of which was him raising Lazarus from the dead. And that was the real threat to the Pharisees, that someone had power over life and death when they considered themselves as the ones who had power over the sacrificial system and who could dole out uh, who was pure, who was impure, who was ritually clean and unclean, uh, a sort of spiritual life or death. Jesus threatens that. And that's why it ultimately, in John's opinion, leads to Jesus being crucified. So this is evidence that, yes, this does indeed most likely take place later on in Jesus' ministry. It's placed here for a thematic reason. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now we learn later on that he is talking about his body. But I find it interesting that Jesus says, like, destroy this temple. And if he's talking about his body, he's basically telling them, kill me. Kill me, and in three days I will be raised. If they understood correctly that he was talking about the temple of his body in that moment, they would have understood Jesus knew full well what his mission was. He knew full well that he would have to die, and that they were going to be the agents of him bringing that mission to pass. Now, when Jesus says this temple in this sense, He uses the word naon, which means sanctuary. That's the inner, holy, reverent part of the temple, or the even more sacred part of the temple. It's not the part of the temple that they're in. So Jesus is is making a different reference than the area of the temple that they're residing in, and that was previously mentioned by John, and showing how he really is that holy inner sanctuary where the presence of God dwelled in times past. He is the presence of God here manifest on earth. And so he is the new sanctuary. And when Jesus dies and saves us from sin and raises us from the dead, when we follow him and receive that gift of faith through baptism, we become sanctuaries as well. We become temples. That's why it says twice in 1 Corinthians, first in chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Holy Spirit dwells in you? And later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. 
So Jesus here is setting up this understanding of the body as a temple by showing how he is the perfect body and is perfectly animated by the Holy Spirit, that he himself is a temple sanctuary that will be destroyed and risen up in three days. But of course they misinterpret him. In verse 20, the Jews said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and you will raise it up in three days? They clearly don't understand what is being said. Uh, 46 years, that means that the temple construction began under Herod the Great under about 19 or 20 BC. So that means that it is around, because you don't count year zero, year zero didn't exist, we're around 28 AD when this is happening, and Jesus was born somewhere around 2 BC. Uh, so 1 to 2, maybe as early as 4 BC, depending on what different, you know, historical and, um, you know, the, the astrological kind of evidence you have for the star at Bethlehem and things like that. So we have Jesus right around here in his 30s doing his public ministry. Early on in his public ministry, he's about 30 or 31, if we take that uh, more consensus date of 1 to 2 BC as his birth date, uh, birth year, uh, then that puts us around his the beginning of his public ministry. So just an interesting little historical tidbit if you're curious. Um, by the way, the temple was mostly done at this point. They continued to refine it and add little adornments all the way up to, some say, up to 63 AD. Some say even all the way up to 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, that it was actually never fully completed or the plans that were eventually made for it to be this bigger complex were never completely finalized when it was destroyed. But at this time, all of the essential things that had been added were pretty much done, okay? Um, But construction continued. He was speaking about the temple of his body. We talked about why that is. There's this interesting little note in Revelation when John, who writes this gospel, has this vision of the end of time and the day of the Lord, sometimes having uh, very close similarities to the day of the Lord being when the kingdom of God is made present in Jesus coming and fulfilling his mission, and then the eventual day of the Lord when the earth ends and the world ends. This is what John sees. In, John, in Revelation 21, verse 22, John says, I saw no temple in the heavenly city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. So even at the very end of time, this final vision of victory over sin and death and the enemy, and what the heavens will look like, what the end of time will look like, and what all eternity with God will look like in heaven, we, we have reiterated this depiction of Jesus being the temple. He is the Lamb. He is offered for our worship. There's no longer any mediator through the priesthood or sacrifice. Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. He is the one and only high priest. We can go directly to him. There is no longer any separation. They understood that later on in the New Testament. However, some people in the New Testament didn't understand this still, and it was providing rumors uh, that led to the death of one particular person in Acts of the Apostles. When Stephen is chosen as one of the deacons, accusations are brought up against him, and this is what uh, others say about him in Acts chapter 6, verse 14. They say, For we have heard Stephen claim that Jesus the Nazarene will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. So even still, this is a rumor that people are using to try and instigate crimes or death penalties against those in the early movements of the church that they did not like. The Jewish leadership, the secular leadership, whoever it might be, uh, this rumor is still going around, this misunderstanding that Jesus said he was going to destroy the temple when he really meant the temple of his body. Verse 22, therefore, 
When Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they came to believe the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. Now, the scripture being referenced here is the Old Testament, the scripture predominantly in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 21, where they quote, No longer where there will be merchants in the house of the Lord of hosts that day, and back in Psalm 69, verse 10, where it said, Because zeal for your house has consumed me. So Zechariah makes this prophecy that there will no longer be merchants in the house on the day of the Lord, and now there are no longer merchants in the house. And so these other things that would have kind of piqued the interest of a Jew who knew their scriptures very, very well, these things would have been called to mind later on when Jesus' promise about being raised from the dead was fulfilled. Uh, one other note about the, uh, the temple area, Psalm 84 references that this area, though it was the court of Gentiles, was still considered to be sacred and holy. Because in Psalm 84, it says, How lovely your dwelling, O Lord of hosts! My soul yearns and pines for the courts of the Lord. So even the courts, the outer courts of the temple, though they weren't the place of sacrifice, though they weren't the inner sanctuary, they were still places where people were meant to delight in the presence of the Lord, and they were meant to be treated with reverence, to stay pure and clean, and only those who were purified and ritually clean should be able to enter them, whether they were a Gentile or a Jew. So all of these things would have been falling into place either after the fact Jesus rose from the dead or as a Jew reading this, knowing your Jewish scriptures. You would have kind of seen these connections, hopefully, or at least they would have reminded you of these things from the Old Testament. Therefore, when he was raised from... Oh, I just read that one. <laughs> they came to believe the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. That's obviously after the resurrection. Uh, verse 23... While he was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, what's interesting here is we have the Feast of Passover reiterated. This is another piece of evidence that John is kind of linking, between, linking pieces of eyewitness testimony or stories together, because we have reference to Passover, another reference to Passover right after it, as if this was a different story or a different line of dialogue that he threw in here, just to make it thematically connected. But usually you don't have to reiterate where you are if you haven't gone anywhere. Um, so that's another piece of evidence that John moved this from where it actually happened uh, and moved it here earlier for a particular reason. Many began to believe in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. And that's the problem, isn't it? The signs are very wonderful and uh, amazing things to see. But when you start sharing the truth and telling people the things they don't want to hear or, or uh, what's the word, challenging their preconceived notions about faith or about themselves, that maybe they aren't of right belief or of right opinion about how the law works or how they're supposed to follow God, then tensions really result. You know, I was doing some reading in one of the commentaries uh, on this passage says, uh, you know, popular opinion, people liking you, something Jesus was never really concerned about, but popular opinion will get you elected. Unpopular truth gets you crucified. Jesus did not care about popular opinion. He didn't care about whether people liked what he had to say. He didn't water it down. He didn't make it surface level or shallow just to appease people and make it more hospitable and accommodating for them. He told them the truth because that's what you do with people that you love. If you love someone, you tell them the truth. And certainly there are different ways of telling the truth, some of which are more loving than others. And there are different times and contexts in which telling the truth is more invited or more appropriate than in others. But we still are called to tell the truth. And that doesn't mean that it's always going to result in a favorable outcome, but that's okay. We're not here to win friendships. We're here to win souls. 
for heaven. And we can't risk being complacent and watering down the gospel because we're uncomfortable with the discomfort that results in sharing it with other people. It's going to be real uncomfortable when we get to heaven and we realize there are people we knew who are not there and we could have told them the good news and yet they ended up somewhere else. I would rather avoid that torturous discomfort than the discomfort that is experienced here on earth by having to just tell someone the truth so that I can preach the good news to them because I love them and I want them in heaven with me. I need to hear it just as much as they do, but it doesn't give me an excuse to not share it. Many began to believe in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus would not trust himself to any of them because he knew them all. This points to an interesting detail in Psalm 33, verse 15. The one who fashioned together their hearts is the one who knows all their works. There's many instances in the gospel where we have reference to Jesus knowing in their minds or in their hearts what they are saying against him. This happens when Jesus heals the paralytic that's dropped through the ceiling. The Pharisees there are murmuring to themselves or to one another. And it says Jesus knew what they were saying in their hearts. Multiple references to that. The Old Testament says that the only person who knows what's in the heart is the one who fashioned us in the first place. So this detail and that Jesus knew who they were in their true nature, that they didn't have the capability of understanding what he came to do, and they didn't have the capability of keeping it a secret. He knew because he's God, because he has that all-knowing capability, divine nature and human nature. He did not need anyone to testify about human nature. He himself understood it well. This means he doesn't need us, first of all, to promulgate his mission, but he wants us. But he also... He doesn't need anyone to show him evidence of what he already knows about the ways in which it's difficult for us to stay faithful, difficult for us to keep a secret or to, um, to follow Jesus faithfully. He doesn't know, he doesn't need to have more evidence of that. He knows that we're not capable of doing everything he asks us, especially without his grace. The only way that we would be capable is with his help. That's why we need him. And so he knows that he doesn't need us, but he wants us. But in order to do what he came to do, he doesn't need any help. He's got it completely under control. And so for you and I, as we reflect upon this passage for this upcoming Sunday, it's important to think about, do I go to Jesus just for signs? Do I go to Jesus? Do I go to church? Do I participate in religion or involve, volunteer in ministries just because I like the way it makes me feel? Or I like the way it makes me look to others? Or do I do it because I have a passionate relationship with the Lord? Do I really understand what it is that he's asking of me? And I think the second thing it calls to mind in me is that image of Jesus with the whip as the Ten Commandments. What in my soul has become an idol that Jesus needs to drive from the temple of my heart and my body? What in my life has become corrupted, a vice, a deadly sin, that is disrespecting the reverence with which God created my body and my soul to have? What's in your life that doesn't belong there, that doesn't belong as part of the person God created you to be? Sometimes we experience that driving out as very forceful, God taking things away, maybe God even being cruel or vindictive, because we're so attached to it. We get so used to our sin that sometimes it seems worse to live a life without it. I mean, that's really what addiction is, right? We're compelled to do it because it gives us something. We can't imagine our life without it. And it's hard to admit that 
And sometimes we really need to admit that maybe we are clinging on to our sins. Maybe we've become too comfortable with them, comfortable with our own pride, our own way of doing things, our own image of God, our own image before others, our own idea of what this whole faith, religion, church thing is about. But what this passage invites me to consider is there are areas of my life and all of our lives that I know are shrouded in darkness that I'm too attached to, that I need something forceful to come into my life, like Jesus literally fashioning a whip and driving them out himself to fix, because I don't have the ability on my own. I can't do anything without the Lord. Nobody can. We can't earn our way to heaven. Only he makes us capable of doing anything noteworthy, gracious at all only because of the gifts God has given us and the strength that he gives us in the sacraments, in prayer, in a relationship with him. And so if I can't do it on my own, I need to invite Jesus to come in to do it. And even though it might be painful, it might be difficult, it might seem very jarring. A lot of people, when they first convert to the church, it's a very jarring experience. And yes, they're very gung-ho, but they have to change a lot of the things in their life if they want to do it all the way. And that's hard. And spiritual warfare comes with that. All those ways we're attached to sin rise to the surface. Doubts manifest. We have more difficulties and tensions with teachings of the church because we forget why we're doing what we're doing in the first place. Because God is good and worthy of all worship. He created us. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, and only He can satisfy the longing in your heart. So are you giving God the worship He is due? Or are you allowing other things to sit in that throne in your heart and become idols? I pray this Lenten season would be an opportunity for us to all experience Jesus driving these things out of us. There's this uh, uh, amazing town in Austria, Innsbruck, and I proposed to my wife there. I've been there several times. It's one of my favorite places in the entire world. And uh, in, in the season of Lent, uh, either leading up to Lent or during the season of Lent, they have this thing called Fauching. And I think that might be their word for Lent or it's just it's this experience. But someone dresses up as a devil or a demon and runs through the streets. And everyone has these whips where they whip at this devil as part of these festivals and preparation for Lent. And it's a reminder of the fact that these evils need to be driven out of all of us. And so we all need our own personal Fauching. We all need our own personal driving, cleansing of the temple. What does that look like for you and how can you invite Jesus to do that? And when he does and you experience that tension or that jarring experience of like, why God, why are you doing this? No, not that. I can't let go of that to be free of the fact in knowing that like, I don't need this anymore. To be free of that attachment, to be completely free in Jesus Christ, who knows you better than you know yourself, who loves you better than you love yourself, who knows how to purify the areas of your life that are broken and attached to sin. He's done it in my life time and time again. I still need him to do it every day. Brothers and sisters, so do you. We all do. And so I pray this Lenten season, this time of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving is allowing that to happen in your life. And as you reflect on this passage this week, to invite Jesus to do that in your life, in new ways. God bless you. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for driving out of our lives everything that is not of you. Help us to be willing to allow you to do that. Help us to be ready 
to receive all you have in store for us this Lent, ready to let go of the things that are robbing us of who we could be Easter morning, of the joy we are meant to experience, the healing that you have in store for each one of us. All you desire is to make us whole and to make us right. And so drive out the money changers in our hearts. Rid our hearts of the marketplaces of sin and evil and vice and selfishness so that we can come before you pure, holy, undefiled as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice to you and to your church as you presented yourself as a living sacrifice for us once and for all to be saved from sin. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. We praise you. We give you glory and honor. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.